Hi guys, welcome to a special mini-cast episode of Victorian Scribblers titled Newspaper Novels, where we talk about, you guessed it, the newspaper novel and all of its many iterations. This is Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives of lesser-known Victorian writers. And I'm Courtney Floyd, a doctoral candidate in literature and print culture at the University of Oregon. Scholars used to think that the three-volume novel, or triple-decker as it was sometimes called, was the most prominent form of novel publication in the Victorian era, and it was certainly the most status symbol-y, the most bourgeoisie, middle-class form of the novel one could obtain, Uh, but for most of the period, at least after the publication and groundbreaking sales of Charles Dickens' The Posthumous Papers of the Pickwick Club, which was published from 1836 to 1837, serial publication was the name of the game. There were a number of forms, several of which with historical traditions of their own, in which a novel could be published serially, and a lot of contemporary references to these forms use those names interchangeably, which is an accepted usage, but one that's pretty infuriating to me because there's a lot of nuance between the forms. So I'm going to talk about two major forms, the part issue and the serial or newspaper novel, uh, and explain what they were and uh, why they were popular, and why it matters to talk about them in order to understand more about the lives of the Victorian scribblers we'll be talking about in this podcast. So, without further ado, the part issue novel. This was a form that was popular in the 18th century and romantic period as a way to cheaply reprint works which had fallen out of copyright. They were often abridged classics, and we would have seen lots of Walter Scott and earlier like romances, historical romances being reprinted. But it's a method that's picked up in the 1830s by publishers Chapman and Hall, who used it to publish Charles Dickens' Pickwick Papers, which, as I mentioned, was a smashing economic success. This pretty much reignites the use of serial publication in England because it had fallen out of fashion as it became more and more associated with forms like Penny Dreadfuls, which I'm not talking about here, but may talk about in a different episode. These these Penny Dreadfuls and other publications like them marketed lurid tales, which many thought didn't have much literary value. And just because I brought up the term literary value and it's a pet peeve of mine, let's do an aside on literary value. So, in the Victorian period, there was a lot of snobbery going on about what counted as high literature and what was um, written for the masses, and this has largely carried over into scholarship on Victorian fiction, even today. So, for a long time, studying popular fiction and other non-classic works was really looked down upon, and even in some circles still is. It's an upward battle I'm fighting, and many of my brilliant scholarly friends are fighting alongside me. It's about taste, right? And uh, 
class and cultural capital. Some texts market themselves to different class audiences, and often texts that are seen as associated with the lower classes are considered to not have much literary merit. But my point of view as a scholar of Victorian popular fiction and print culture is that if it made an impact on the world, it's worth studying because it helps us understand something about the period and about the readership and about what was considered important or unimportant. Um, and so you won't find me making, or hopefully you won't find me making many judgments on literary value. Instead, I will just be thinking about cultural context and material impact on the world. Anyway, I'll step off my soapbox and continue our discussion. So Dickens' Pickwick Papers kind of set a format for the part-issue novel that's um, sometimes deviated from, but mostly as the standard form. Each part of Dickens' Pickwick Papers was bound in green paper. It was usually 32 pages long, and it had two full-plate illustrations. At this point in time, they would have been woodcut illustrations, I believe, although I'll double-check on that and uh, put a note in the show notes if I'm incorrect. They did have copper plate etching and some other illustration forms at the time, but the cheapest and most easily done were woodcuts, and they could be printed in the text or on a full page beside the text. Each installment, so each piece of the novel wrapped up by itself, would have cost a shilling, and the novel was printed in 20 parts or installments but came out in 19 numbers, the last being a double issue. So this would have cost readers 19 shillings. I've added a link to the University of Victoria's page on serial novels in my show notes because it's a valuable resource for anyone who's interested in further study of the form of the part issue or the serial novel, and because there are lots of links to pictures, notably to the Pickwick Papers pictures. So take a look at that if you have the time or the interest. Okay, so people could and did collect these part issue installments and bind them or have them rebound professionally as a book. And this might sound unusual, but in the Victorian period, uh, especially in the early period, it was still the norm for books to come either in really cheap bindings or not bound at all, so that people who had the economic status, the ability to purchase books, could have them rebound in their house style. So you'd see libraries where people's books all matched one another, and they didn't come that way at the store, they were individually redone that way. So the part issue novel was a cheap way for a middle or lower middle class person to collect parts of a book, rebind them as a whole, and then it looks just as if you've bought the whole book. Which leads me to a short discussion of the book market in the Victorian era. As I've mentioned, the part issue was a pretty cheap way to buy a book over time. The cheapest way to have access to books beside a public library was subscription to Moody's Circulating Library, which was a very elite circulating library to which upper middle class and aristocratic individuals had recourse. Membership costs a guinea at the cheapest, which is one pound and one shilling, or 21 shillings. And you could have access to as many books as you wanted, though not all at once in this way. And these would have been mostly triple-decker novels or three-volume, which were, for most of the Victorian era, most novels were written as three volumes because that's what the publishing marketplace demanded, driven, in fact, by Moody's. 
if you were to buy a book by itself, a three-volume book by itself, that would cost you 31 shillings and six pence. So to translate that into today's prices a little bit better, the price of a subscription to Moody's in 1860 would translate to about 90 pounds in 2017 currency. For a single novel, that would be about 136 pounds. And just to put this in context for the masses of people, most were living on less than 100 pounds a year in this time period. So a part issue was a very economic way to gain access to books one otherwise wouldn't have access to. Um, circulating library was still cheaper. Then along comes the serial novel. So as the century progressed, printing technology, papermaking technology, and a host of legislative and cultural shifts made it possible for books and newspapers to get cheaper and cheaper. Newspaper prices changed much more quickly, so that many were about a penny per issue, or about 50 cents in today's currency, by the 1850s. Newspapers began printing installments of novels in their actual pages instead of offering them as supplements or part issues on the side. This was very appealing to readers, especially readers who had to budget more carefully than others, um, who would have paid about as much for an issue of a newspaper as they did for a single installment of a part-issue novel, which was printed by itself. They got more bang for their buck, because the newspaper might be serializing more than one novel at one time, for instance, and the reader would then have access to two to parts of two novels, plus the news articles, illustrations, advertisements, essays, and other elements the periodical provided. The serial or newspaper novels took over from the part issue as a century went on. So we have part issues fading out and serial novels really taking over. There were some notable exceptions to this trend, however specifically George Eliot's Middlemarch, which is published as a part issue by Blackwoods in the 1870s. These kinds of publication had a real effect on the form of novels, changing not only how authors wrote, but how readers experienced and responded to fiction. Readers had to wait week to week or month to month, so inborn suspense resulted. Um, they couldn't just binge read a novel in the same way that we binge watch network television today. So it was like watching on a network and having to wait till next Thursday to get the newest episode of Supernatural. Authors would write in more cliffhangers intentionally just to amp up the suspense because they knew where parts would break and uh, they knew where readers would be waiting to hear what happened next to their favorite characters. Um, authors would also use the gaps between installments as temporal and spatial transitions, much like the gutters, gutters? I think they're called gutters, gaps, whatever, the, the blank spaces between panels of comics often also serve to transition in space and time. Sometimes authors would break off mid-sentence or mid-chapter at the end of an installment, really, really laying on that suspense heavy. Readers could write into the author as the story is playing out to speculate on the ending, to request certain outcomes, or even to just express their delight or their fear or their outrage. 
And Charles Dickens is noted as being somebody who really responded to this reader interaction and actually changed elements of his stories based on what the readers expressed in their letters to him. The format itself made novels tighter and faster paced because there was a limited space in newspapers for installments to print. And so they would have, you know, 20 installments, a few uh, columns every week or month, and they just had to make their story, condense their story into that format. Charlotte Bronte infamously refused her publisher's suggestion to serialize because she said she had neither the confidence nor the spirits to write hand-to-mouth. And this was very much a hand-to-mouth mode, as I talked about in our last Wilkie Collins episode. Writers often would not have completed the novel before they begin serialization, and so things would change, um, and they had to work up to the wire of publication deadlines and then hand things in and carry on. Margaret Oliphant, who was a novelist and journalist and critic, sort of a jack-of-all-trades, wrote about the form's potential and danger, noting, quote, reading for the million, which was another way to which this form of publication was referred, had become so multitudinous, we have not even attempted to notice the countless swarms of serial stories, separate publications issued like the magazines and weekly numbers, printed on the worst paper with the worst type, and the poorest illustrations of which the arts are capable, which we believe are about as popular as the periodicals themselves. These are bought by the very poorest classes, but they are by no means cheap literature." Because the newspapers are often not considered high or lasting literature, the fiction printed within them has been assumed to be not high or lasting either. To put it more bluntly, until very recently, and even sometimes now, many people regarded this sort of publication as trash. But in point of fact, almost every 19th century classic we hail in classrooms and libraries today was originally published either in part issue or serially in a newspaper or magazine. As Project Boz puts so succinctly, every one of Charles Dickens' novels was published serially. I've already mentioned that George Eliot's classic Middlemarch was published as part issue by Blackwoods. It bears noting that Silas Marner was also published serially in the Cornhill magazine. Thomas Hardy's Jude the Obscure was serialized. And Oscar Wilde's The Picture of Dorian Gray was originally published in Libincott's Monthly Magazine in 1890. And that's just naming a few that pop to mind. Not all of these authors loved the form. In fact, Thomas Hardy had such a bad experience with censorship that he absolutely hated serialization. Regardless, serial publications were wildly popular and influential throughout the 19th and well into the 20th century. One odd consequence of the rise of the ebook and digital publishing is, in fact, that serialization is coming back. Some of you will have doubtless heard of and or read along with Downton Abbey writer's Julian Fellows' Belgravia, which was published serially in 2016 and, I believe, can still be consumed serially via its website. Amazon has also gotten into the serial game with its Kindle serials. Because of that, I had the unique pleasure and frustration of reading and waiting for installments of a serial novel by one of my favorite authors, Shauna McGuire, uh, indexing Reflections, which I've linked in my show notes, when it came out in 2015. And that gave me a lot of insight, actually, into how Victorians would have read 
and how the form of serialization would have affected their reading experience, even though this was a modern urban fantasy novel. So it's worth exploring if you're interested in how the works of Victorian scribblers would have been consumed. You can, you don't even have to do it with Victorian novels, although there are, are ways to experience Victorian novels serially as well, and I'll link to some of those in my show notes too. But it was a very important form, it continues to be important in our studies today, and I think that's really gaining recognition lately in my field. And it was even important until much more recently than you might suppose. Alexander McCall Smith recalls about the form, Serial novels have an unexpected effect. They hook the writer as well as the reader. As we explore the lives and work of more and more Victorian scribblers, we'll be encountering this form and reactions to it again and again. So, I hope this has been helpful in orienting you as to why it's important and what it is, and I hope you'll join me next time as we discuss the life of Mary Elizabeth Braddon. After the ball, sung by Mr. George J. If you liked what you heard today and want to hear more, head on over to the Victorian Scribblers Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash Victorian Scribblers. That's www.patreon.com slash Victorian Scribblers. There you can find all the latest updates about the podcast, most recent episodes, exclusive content, and links to all of the social media pages. You can also drop me a line at Victorian Scribblers at Outlook.com. I'll look forward to hearing from you. Bye. Music for this podcast, courtesy of MuseOpen, www.museopen.org.